it costs more to redeem you than you're worth. Bible podcast. My name is Matt. I am a complete idiot. We were just 14 <laughs> minutes in before I realized that I hadn't started recording yet. So um, you guys don't realize it, but I'm saying hello for the second time today. So hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. <laughs> well, it works, Matt, because now we're ready for your celebratory. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, let me let me introduce everybody first here. Eric, Eric said that I should do this, so we're going to introduce Karen first. Karen, you're first. Da, 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 da. Hi, I'm Karen. <laughs> we have Tracy. Morning. And since Eric is so humble, because before I, <laughs> I, I introduced him first, and he said go and put Karen first, we'll say in the, in the last but not the least is Eric. Yeah, that would be me. Oh, oh, boy. I think that's the first time I've done that, or I haven't remembered to actually hit the record button. Uh, I'm glad we didn't get, you know, 45 minutes in. <laughs> but anyway, so anyway, everybody, hey, this is a special episode. You know why? And now I know why. <laughs> you know why. <laughs> this is episode 30. Yay. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was ready. I, yeah, a little yeah, I, I, there. And Karen is still slow on the uptake on that. Oh, Karen, you go back to last place. Yep, episode 30. We've been doing this. We've been recording for 30 weeks in a row. Well, roughly. I did have one special episode in there where I put in one of Eric's uh, sermons. But for the most part, it's been 30 weeks. We've got 30 plus probably close to 35 or 40 hours worth of stuff that we've recorded. And it's been pretty cool. Now, the other reason that this episode is special is because today we finish the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus has been more interesting to me than I actually thought it would be. I usually check out in Leviticus, or in the past I have. But this time, it seems like taking the time to slow down and get into it, I've actually come away with a really, I, I don't know, a lot, of, a lot of knowledge, a lot of interest in it that I didn't have before. And uh, I know that I'm not alone with, you know, in the past thinking Leviticus was kind of dry and boring because I've met people who, you know, when I tell them about the podcast and how we're going chronologically and they say, well, where are you? And I say, oh, Leviticus. And they kind of go, oh. For me, me reading through Leviticus, it's been relevance, right? So most of the time, you know, it's there's so much ceremonial stuff that was pertinent to that society in that time and place. And so and I've always just kind of struggled to relate to it because it's not pertinent to me now. But we've kind of found some meta themes in it. And it's just I like my understanding of that society and that time and place has grown. But also how that how that ties in as like sort of these ribbons of consistency into the story of God has really jumped out at me. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've we do a disservice if we don't spend some time looking into these things that are talked about there, all these feasts, all of these rituals, uh, specifically the Sabbath, how it was set up, how it was built, or not the Sabbath, the sanctuary, um, you know, things about those and seeing how 
how that relates even to us today and into the future. It's, it's really, it's really been interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I think it was good that you mentioned to, though too, um, just the Sabbaths. It really pulled it in and gave you the importance of the Sabbath and how it's um, relevant and important to the children of Israel and, and even us today. I think that really helps. Yeah. Well, and on that note, chapter 23 of Leviticus begins, it's talking about the feasts of the Lord, and these would be the various, uh, what we would think of probably as holidays um, that the Hebrews were expected to remember and keep throughout the year on a regular basis. And the first thing that comes up is, again, the Sabbath. Uh, Being first tells me that probably it was considered to be very important, um, and it basically is a almost a little quote from the Ten Commandments about six days you shall do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Solemn rest, it says, holy convocation, do no work on it. And it is, it's important, and we've talked about it a lot because of why or how it points to God as the creator. And it's, you know, there's really no reason to keep it other than because God said to keep it. And uh, that places him in a place of authority that we don't have. It goes on to talk about Passover on the 14th day of the first month and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in there and how it would you would have uh, basically, oh gosh, uh, it would start with um, that Feast of Unleavened Bread on that 15th day of the month. But then you would have the first day that would be a Sabbath. And then the seventh day of that would be a Sabbath. And Passover doesn't always fall on the weeks, you know what I mean? It doesn't fall, you know, Passover could start on Tuesday, you know, and they would keep that as a Sabbath. And then the, and then they would have another one on the seventh day of that Passover celebration. Yeah, well, and that brings up a good... Means... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think Sabbath just means rest, though. So... Yes. It's not, it's not, it's not like the name of the seventh day of the week. It is a day of rest. Right, right. And that causes some confusion when we get to the New Testament and Paul writes about some people wishing to observe a Sabbath here and a Sabbath there, which sounds kind of random when it shows up in the New Testament, because we're used to thinking, well, it comes every seven days and it's on Saturday. But when we remember that when he's talking to these, to these new believers, from Judaism, they're used to Sabbaths, the plural, showing up during these feasts at rather random days of the week. It could be a Tuesday and a Tuesday or a Tuesday and a Wednesday. And he's trying to talk to them and say, hey, look, you know, if you choose to observe those Sabbaths or you don't, you know, hey, that's a that's kind of a thing up to you. You need to be convicted of that. And and that's just an important thing to keep in mind as we hit the New Testament, because when we see here in Leviticus, when they're asked to keep these things, they are, in fact, days, Sabbaths set aside that are corresponding to calendar dates, not days of the week days. So, you know, and these, these just to give some context, these feasts are tend to be grouped in September and in May. Or I guess maybe chronologically you'd say May and September. Uh, there are four and the feast of the Passover and feast of weeks. They kind of come together as a group. They're not one and the same, but they come together. And the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement come at, you know, in, together in, in somewhat of a group. So you've got spring 
and you've got a fall set of these. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, uh, the next one it talks about is the Feast of First Fruits. And some of these, I don't know that we talked about them specifically. And I think there's probably a lot of meaning today that's probably lost to us. But, you know, the Feast of First Fruits, that would be, they would take that, that first piece bit of their harvest. They would take some of that as, a, as an offering. And there would be other things along with that that would go in with that. They would sacrifice a ma- uh, male lamb. They would have a grain offering that would be burned. They'd have a wine offering. I don't know exactly what they did with that. I think maybe they'd actually just poured it out around the, um, I don't know. I don't know what they did with that. Maybe the right sum will come up. Relating to that is it's in verse 11. On the day after the Sabbath, they're doing their offerings. Now we're so used to we're so used to in church passing the plate when you're sitting in church. Mm, right. Our mind immediately says, "Oh, well, obviously when you're doing offerings, that's the day of worship." Except right here it says on the day after the Sabbath, you do your uh-huh. offerings. Mm-hmm. Which causes some confusion when we skip ahead to Corinthians and right. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 says 16.2, on the first day of each week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper so that there be no collecting when I come. He's telling them to set aside their offerings on the first day of the week. And some have immediately gone to, well, duh, that's because they're sitting in church. He's saying, no, 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 you do your accounting on Sunday. You -hmm. get your offering ready on Sunday so that when I come, it's together. And we have, and the people will say, well, no, 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 that's because, that's because the Sabbath is now Sunday then explain this. We're back here in Leviticus way before Jesus' time, and the commandment to them is on the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath, that's when you're doing your offerings. So this idea that offering day is always the same thing as worship day has a long precedent of not being the same thing. Yeah, interesting. I never thought about going back that far. but I didn't either until I read that. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Wait, I wonder if it's a whole act of maybe giving and taking of money. You know, sometimes it's, like you said, you can do the accounting on Monday and take the envelope on, you know, another day. I think, too, that this is a thing that we've lost sight of, is that these, this was immersive. They didn't, they weren't like worshipers on one day a week for one hour. I mean, their life was their religion. Like yeah. everything. And, and we've gotten these days very conditioned to be like, well, you know, your life of worship and your relationship with God is kind of limited to the one hour you go to church. Right. Or if you want to go to the Bible study at church, you know, you do a whopping two hours a week. And they're, they're giving to God, they're offering their sacrifices, because, you know, as we've read through this, there's no indication that they offer their sacrifices on the Sabbath. True. They would just come on whenever and and offer these sacrifices. This was to be, is my understanding, a total and complete immersion in the idea that they are property of God. Mm-hmm. And the land is property of God. And these feasts are actually, I, I wrote down anyways, they're like, there's a pre-Thanksgiving. It's like, wow, look, we're starting to get a crop. And so they, I mean, they're agrarian people. They couldn't just zip on down to Costco when things got tight. I mean, this was yeah. this was the real celebration of wow, God gave us crops, and they're celebrating it in the be- you know in May this year. By the way, uh, the Feast of Weeks was May twenty eighth, 
And then Feast of Trumpets um, was September 18 to 20 in, in the year 2020. And so you've got the beginning of the you know, first indication of, of crops coming on, and then you have your celebration of harvesting, which to us being so out of touch with agriculture, we can forget that. But when your very life depended on those crops, this was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, you had the Feast of First Fruits. 50, 50 days after that, you would have the Feast of Weeks, and there's various uh, various sacrifices made with that. Uh, the Feast of Trumpets, this one was kind of interesting to me. Not that it, there was not a whole lot said about it, but on the seventh month, the first day of that month, they would literally blow trumpets, and that seemed like that was basically it. It was considered a Sabbath rest, but they would blow trumpets, you know, and... Uh, Sounds to me kind of like a party because trumpets are generally considered very celebratory. Did I say that? Celebratory. Such a big word. I I talk good American. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, yeah, literally just um, see, there was there was some offering made there, but it was literally just a like an excuse to make noise. Kind of cool. Kind of fun. Uh, the very next, the Day of Atonement. We talked a lot about that one. And um, once again, it talks here about how you were to afflict your souls. I don't remember what verse that was in. But um, if you... Okay. But if you did not, as it says, afflict your soul, you were to be cut off from your people. Now, we've talked a lot about what that meant, being cut off from your people. Cut off from what? the inheritance is it a banishment is it what but basically if you are not going to take place if you're not going to take part in this you're not going to take part in any of it and that day of atonement after our discussion there i think we've learned that that was an extraordinarily important day to remember and be a part of because of everything that it was going to represent even if these people didn't understand it uh, we can look at back on it now and understand that this Day of Atonement is talking about the entire uh, ministry of Jesus, from his sacrifice here to his um, what he's doing now in heaven on our behalf as our intermediary between us and God. You know. Yeah. So, so really, really quick that the Feast of Trumpets, I. I had actually looked this up during the week just because I was curious what it was, what it symbolized. You know how a lot of these things are symbolic of something else. And the idea that I found on some, on some like Hebrew or Jewish websites was that the yearly quote unquote trumpet call foreshadowed the day of atonement. Like Mm. beware, be alert. We're coming up on the day of atonement. And so, and it was, and it was theoretically, it foreshadows the end of time when, you know, God's final call to his people, like the world's winding down, get ready. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think about that, but their trumpets show up again in Revelation. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what I thought of. And I wondered, you know, like these people were a long time before Revelation, they wouldn't have known to draw that correlation, but I wonder if. So anyway, I, I looked it up and that's kind of what it said which i thought was kind of cool yeah because they do go together i mean the the sure. piece of trumpets and day of atonement do do kind of come as a group 
And it makes sense. It makes sense that you would be looking forward to this because, I mean, this was kind of like this. This is kind of the day that the whole calendar revolved around, really. Uh, Well, between this and Passover. But but that um, that announcement with the trumpets, it it just kind of reminds me. My wife looks forward to every July hearing the cicadas start making their noise up in the trees because the urban legend is that six weeks later you get the first frost. She hates summer so bad that when she starts hearing those things going in the trees, uh, it just brings her all kinds of joy. And uh, I can imagine that hearing that, what, roughly three months before. No, you it's get 10 in- days. 10 days. Yep. Seventh month on the first day is the Feast of Trumpets. And then on the 10th day is the Day of Atonement. Right. Oh, you're right. I was reading that backwards. I was reading seventh seventh day of the 10th month. Yeah, because they list them that way. It's weird. One day it's yep. a month and then day and then it's day and a month. But yeah, yeah, it's only 10 days earlier. They're saying heads up, like Karen is saying, get yeah. ready. This this is coming. Right. Yeah. I yeah. thought it was kind of cool because because it's like it's just kind of. It's it's just an alert, like this the the one big yearly, the most serious day is coming. Like get ready. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah. but in reading this whole thing, you know, it just kind of goes along with God saying, you know what, I'm going to be your leader, and you're going to be my people, and your whole focus will be on me. There's special sabbaths. There's all these basically activities and ceremonies that keep the focus on their relationship with God and how they need to maintain it throughout the whole book. Yep. It was immersive. Well, then- there's, there's a little interesting detail at the very end of the day of atonement in 32. We already talked about how given these calendar dates, anything could land on it and be a Sabbath. It's just that at the very end of that verse, it says on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. So some people have wondered, is like, well, why do some Christians today and why do the Jews always keep Sabbath from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday? That's weird. Why don't you do it Monday to Monday? Well, Monday to Monday was a later thing. That, you know, midnight to midnight, I'm sorry. It was a thing that came later. I'm not sure if the Romans were the first, but they certainly used it. But the Jews calculated their days from evening to evening shows up again in creation and evening and morning were the first day. It's like, well, the days, it seems strange to my Western brain that the day actually by, by Jewish calculations here and by in creation, it starts in the evening, mm-hmm. you know? So tonight, which is, which is Saturday tonight in Jewish reckoning, as soon as sundown hits is actually the beginning of Sunday. All of my days now begin with a nice long nap. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Nice. There you go. Well, so it's it's just, there's some things that get dropped in here, like we talked about in um, earlier. Well, something else will show up in 25 that are clues as we read elsewhere in the Bible where we're like, wait a minute, wait, what, what, where did that come from? What's going on here? So if we're sleeping through Leviticus, we miss those things that show up later. Yeah. Next on the calendar would have been the Feast of Tabernacles. This has been another seven-day feast with the first day starting as another day with no work. There'd be offerings. Uh, the eighth well, day, another day with no work. It's five days after the Day of Atonement, too. Yeah. Yes, you're correct. So this, you're this right. one has three feasts that all come together. 
Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Feast of Booths. So, you know, we talk about the holiday season here that starts, you know, we start with Thanksgiving and you go to Christmas and New Year's. Boy, these guys were just, uh, they're just going for quite a while here. That was, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of stuff for them to, to get. I mean, we talk about be, being busy now, November through December. They, they were, they were doing a lot. Now, there was something here. Week straight. What was that? I said, this one's a week straight. Yeah, they just keep going. Now, verse 42 in there talks about how they're supposed to dwell in booths. And I've heard of that before. I think uh, maybe the Feast of Tabernacles is also sometimes called the Feast of Booths, if I'm thinking about this right. Verse 42 says, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. I'm taking that to be tents. I don't really know what they mean. Anybody know what what that's about? I've seen it, how it's done today, and it shows up again, occasionally, only lightly mentioned, is that what they'll do, is I saw this first when I lived in New York, I lived in New York City, is a lot of people would take um, some sort of material and basically make an awning on their back porch, and they would put leaves or or branches or on top of these things and then they would basically picnic in there they wouldn't sleep in there necessarily i'm sure they had various things as to who would do what and everybody probably had different levels of how committed they were to this thing but that's what it was it was it was basically an awning and it was a shelter now different people through time have probably done it differently and in different places different belief groups maybe they do tents maybe they do you know other things but it was the things that i have always seen were some sort of thing that involved some sort of greenery uh, on a roof. And mm. I even saw this set up on a public university campus once. I was, they were a client of mine and I was working there and I walked by and I asked my person who I was with, I'm like, so what's up with the leafy uh, tent over there? And they're like, oh, that's for the Feast of Booths so that uh, you know, students can pop into there. Mm. And basically it was a reminder because again, the context of what this is, is in 43. That your generation may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So this was to be a commemorative, just like in, in the United States, we've got Thanksgiving. Now, how much of that ends up being fictional stories that we've been told and, and not, I, I don't know, can't speak of that. But the idea is that it's a memory of, hey, this, was, this is a significant point in your past. Don't forget it. That's what it was about. So I've got a side-by-side Bible. I've got four different versions. And so two, two of them are translations, and two of them are paraphrases. And the New King James, which is a translation, and the Message, which is a paraphrase, both call it booths. The NIV says, live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. Okay. Mm. And then the New Living Translation, which is another paraphrase, says, For seven days you must live outside in little shelters. All native-born Israelites must live in shelters. So I don't, I mean, I'm not seeing a particular call for greenery or a particular call for a shape or a style. It's just, it is temporary to symbolize coming out of Egypt and that period of transience. Yeah, yeah. And and for sure, I mean, probably people did it different. New York City, they you'd be living on the streets. They're trying that in Portland right now, but uh, Denver. Yeah, different <laughs> idea. Um, 
is the idea was that they would remember. And you know, you think about it, I've got kids. If we said, okay, kids, we're going to be outside for meals or maybe sleeping out, who knows, for a week, th- the questions would come up. Like, why? Why are we doing this? What's this about? How can we And it would be an inevitable um, opportunity to share with them. Now, lest we think that this is a terrible thing, this is a thing I think that the Jewish culture has done better than my Puritan-informed religion, uh, <laughs> is that it is commanded several times in verse 38, and then again, 30, rejoice. You know, you shall celebrate in 39, 40, you shall rejoice. <laughs> like, you're, this is supposed to be a really awesome thing mm-hmm. for you. <laughs> they have atonement solemn, right? Yeah. But but there's this, it's, and I mean, I'm at the risk of, of reading too much into this, we have the day of atonement, and then we have celebration. You have mm. the Passover, you know, that, that comes and then you're freed and then you celebrate. I mean, if you I can see a parallel to Christian stuff. It's like Jesus comes. He yeah. saves us from our sins. We should celebrate this and we should remember this, which is a little bit of a bummer. I'm not going to lie to you as I look at these feasts and, and folks are like, well, these things were pointing forward to Christ. I agree. They were. And why did we quit celebrating that? Yeah. It's a little bit of a bummer. It is. And that's a lot of times some of these things I've wondered why. I mean, I know I understand that the significance has been fulfilled, but why not celebrate some of this stuff still? Now that we're able to say, hey, this thing points to something, you know, celebrate it to look back. And there are some Christians that do, I think. You know, there are, yes, there, there are, you know, and it would be interesting so, to, it would be interesting to take part in some of that. It might be fun. Go ahead, Karen. The, the way that, <laughs> the way that, reli- you know, Eric, with your, my Puritan informed religion, <laughs> there are so many instances through history where, where that attitude changes the tone of religion and it takes the celebration out of the things that should give us the most joy. And it's and it's it's interesting, you know, here we are in a modern world, your our religion, a, a lot of I think Protestant religions are Puritan informed. But nowadays, we're very aware of that. And really, what are we going to do with it? But when you said right. that, it reminded me, my, my mother has a story she likes to tell. Her dad was a minister, very conservative, very proper. And and so when they would have family outings, they would get in the car and they would drive to where they were <laughs> they were going. And then before they got out of the car, he would turn to the family and he would announce solemnly, "Now you have to have fun today." <laughs> it was like, oh, "Thanks, Dad." And, and it's it's just so funny that humans. We just, we lose our perspective and we, we kind of have to, in, in these texts up here, this is a day of, you know, rejoice. This is a day of celebration. And we kind of have to be told sometimes, like, simmer down and think solemnly, like this matters. And then other times we have to be told to lighten up and enjoy ourselves. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I could, I could think of a few times being someplace like Disneyland and a dad finally just losing his mind with his kids. I'm like, <laughs> we're here to have fun. Yeah. 
You will have fun. You will have fun. Do you have any idea what it costs to get in here? We're going to have fun. Yeah. So that's that's basically the feasts that they would have. And then uh, chapter 24 goes into the care of, well, Differently, but basically, oh, it starts out with care of stuff in the in the tabernacle. Starts with the lamps and talks about how they needed to keep burning continually, and how it was inside the tabernacle, but outside of the the veil, so not in with the ark, just outside of the ark. In the holy place, right? Yeah, in the holy place, not the most holy place. And I kind of take that to be the only light in that room so that could be interesting too where you basically have eight candles giving you all of the light for that oh but there's plenty of gold for it to reflect off so that helps well that would yeah. be interesting to see though wouldn't it it's not a very yeah. big place either no right yeah not, not terribly big but um it's not going to be like you've walked in and have flood lamps you know right light everything up. but it's going to be a. Uh, it's going to be, it, I think we could probably all kind of imagine what that would look like. of Just that sort of dim light reflecting. Well, I don't know. I guess I've never seen that much gold in one place at once to be able to know what it looks like <laughs> reflecting off of things. But uh, I, I just could imagine it would be kind of a beauty in that. Because, you know, you got to remember that the, you got that, you got the incense going. If you like incense, some people can't stand it. I It depends on what's burning, I guess, sometimes. But um, it, I can imagine how that would create a very somber maybe that's the wrong word but a very um i don't know to me it seems like it would be a calming effect to have yeah light you know i remember touring in in, in when i went i uh, did a, a study tour once in europe and i would walk into these cathedrals and you just have to stop because uh. it's noisy outside and there's just all kinds of stuff going on and you stop and you step inside one of those buildings and it it just there's something about that that for me anyways, I just had to stop and go, okay, wait a minute. Wow. Reverence. This is, this is different. Uh, you know, with, without commentary on what those cathedrals cost and what they meant and all that other stuff. And I would imagine that if you were out in the Sinai Peninsula and you were a priest and you stepped into that temple, you would just have to stop. Your eyes would have to get adjusted. You would, it would, you, you would, like, you're not in Kansas anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It would just, it would just kind of physically command you to stop and realize I am now in a very different space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think there's, I think there's value in a casual worship atmosphere. Um, I once heard a guy say, going to church should be just as comfortable as sitting in your own living room. Mm. And when you think of that, I, now I understood what he was getting at. Yeah. Should be yourself just as much as you are at home. You should be as comfortable with your brothers and sisters in Christ as you are at home with your family. And you should be as comfortable in God's presence as you are in your own space. Like I get what he was saying, but but the part that that's that that I find missing is the awe-inspiring. No, I am actually a tiny created microcosm. I am not, you know, Kansas. All we are is dust in the wind, right? Mm -hmm. And it, I think there's value to that perspective too. Like it sort of puts you in your place. 
Yeah, I can kind of relate this to the experience we've had over the last few weeks. Now our church has opened up and, and it's available for people to go in again, but we had several weeks there when, and this is probably the case all over the country, maybe around the world, where we were live streaming services. We tried for a couple of weeks to just, you know, live stream right there from the church. Uh, and when that proved to be, di well, not just difficult, kind of impossible because you weren't allowed to have more than 10 people in a place at a time, then it was live streaming from the pastor's own house. And we would sit in the living room, in our own living room, and try to have a worship service. And it was, in my opinion, ineffectual. It was it was very hard to keep involved. It was a constant battle to keep the kids interested in it. Uh, it just was, you know, there was nothing really special about it. We were sitting watching TV, and and uh, yeah. so so I like you said, I get what your friend was saying, but at the same time, it can't be just as comfortable as your living room because it needs to be different. It needs to yeah. be special. And he was getting at a lack of pretense. Yeah, I get and, that. And, and I totally get that perspective. But I want, I want to, I love that high church experience where you are, the, where the building itself, I get it. The building really, really doesn't matter. But I'm, I'm a little tiny human and I'm distracted easily. And when I walk into a beautiful building, to me, it, it gives me silent awe. It gives me reverence. Like it reaches out and demands it from me, mm -hmm. and I right. and I find that valuable in some ways. Yeah. Well, the chapter goes on to talk about the bread of the tabernacle. Now, we this would have been found right on the opposite side of the room from the tabernacle lamp. These yeah, loaves are huge. Okay, I bake. These loaves are huge. This is crazy. Did you guys read the amount of flour that goes into each one? Well, I guess I did, but it went over my head because I've never seven. I'm says about seven pounds of flour per loaf. What on earth? What? Yeah. Two-tenths of an ephah is seven, seven pounds? That's what my that's what my little translation down at the bottom, my little conversion chart says, about wow. seven pounds or 3.2 kilograms. That is, those are giant loaves of bread. You know yes. what, though? That makes a little sense to me for something that happens later when David comes in with his men yeah. And yeah. they're hungry, and the priest says, well, we don't have anything but the bread here. And David says, well, take it. And then Jesus mentions it later. Because really, I don't think the men were supposed to eat this. The priests were supposed to eat this. Right. But that would have had to have been a lot of bread to be able to feed David and a yeah. and, and, and men. What you want to say men? You're thinking enough men to be able to uh, uh, have a battle. You know, so, did you say right. that was seven pounds per loaf, Karen? Yeah, that is. I I had so, yeah. I'll admit I had never uh, and, made note of that either. That is, I had kind of had always pictured them as like tortillas. <laughs> right, 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 right. But, I mean, that would be so. If there's twelve of these suckers, yeah. what is that? What's what, let's say 12, 24, 36, 48, 60, 72. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> That's eighty-four pounds of flour. Oh for the table showbread. Oh my goodness. Wow. And then how often would they make this? Did they make this once, once a, a week? week? Was it put out? Okay. And then every Sabbath. Okay. They put it out every Sabbath. And then it would be there once a week. 
And then Aaron and and his, and his sons, it says, they would eat it. Wow. Well, I guess they weren't going hungry. No. Um, I dig carbs. This is awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it says that it would be eaten by the priest in a holy place. Does that like surely that doesn't mean it's just specifically in with it? Maybe, maybe they I think had it means it inside the, the inside the tabernacle. Yes, um, uh, the sanctuary outer. outer not, not sanctuary inside the um, the uh, curtained off area in the yeah courtyard. the tabernacle. Okay, yeah, because so, yeah. they would eat their they would eat the meat out there in the courtyard also. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. All that stuff. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, they would eat it, and then that yeah, that becomes an interesting story later when when Jesus brings that up and and what happened there with David. Uh, we'll get we'll we'll end up getting to that. Now we get to into a little interesting part here: the penalty for blasphemy, and it starts out where someone's let's see whose whose was it? It was a half Israelite, half Egyptian. Son, it just says the son of an Israelite woman, and he was half Egyptian. He blasphemed and cursed, and he was brought to Moses. And his mother's name was Shelemith, and I don't know why, but that name rings a bell in my head for some reason. But maybe it's just because a lot of names sound the same, and and uh, and uh, I'm not used to names like that. But he was supposed to be taken outside the camp, and everyone who heard him would lay their hands on his head. And then he would be stoned to death. I was reading about this. Up until this point, there had been no real ruling on blasphemy God. Maybe it was like one of those unwritten things. You just didn't do it and they never approached that. But they were saying that at this point, they had to to really make a stand about what they were going to do and and what the penalty was going to be. And Moses didn't actually rule on it. He took it to God and basically said, "Okay, what am I going to what am I going to do? What do you want me to do? And that was the point where it came because it never before had it had to be ruled on. Well, keep in mind, it hadn't been that long before this that they had been given the commandments and specifically of of honoring God's name. And, you know, these are people who when they were told to do something, it'd be like, "Okay, we're going to do it. And then they would either go overboard or they would forget about it completely but well but didn't when 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 god called moses to go wasn't that when he introduced himself by name first called himself i am i thought there was a section where he said like abraham knew me but this is the first time I'm giving you my name i thought there was an actual thing so like these israelites would have been the the first recipients of um, do not take the Lord your God's name in vain, but they also would have been the first recipients of this is the Lord your God's name. Mm-hmm. If you see what I'm getting at, so yeah. maybe this was so from that point of view, like if all they ha- if they, if if they didn't even have his name before this generation, then obviously, you know, being sacrilegious with his name, you know, blaspheming would be wouldn't wouldn't happen. I don't mm-hmm. know. Well, this penalty, now that it has been instituted, this was supposed to be for whether it was people who lived in the camp or if it was a stranger. If they heard a, if they, if a stranger was among them and and did this, they were supposed to get the same penalty. This was, this was serious business. And verse fifteen said, "Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin." 
that that sort of sounds ominous in my ears, but um, you don't do it. Absolutely, don't do it. Cursing God. I mean, I mean, how much have we tried to stress that, or you know, that this is the person who has made you, has created you, who just, has? You know, it's so common. People just, you know, flip oh. God's name around like it's no big deal, and you just yeah. you hear it dozens of times a day. I mean, mm-hmm. I know, I know. I know atheists who use it as a common exclamation and a swear word. And like, that's, that's not a bold statement for them. They don't even believe in that being. It's just a common expression of whatever. Mm-hmm. Even to the point of throwing expletives in between. Mm-hmm. And, and they just, yeah, they don't, people don't think anything of it. Nothing at all. It's sad. To, to be, to be clear. And I think that this is worth maybe touching on is that we have this and then we have 17 to 20, basically, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And I wonder, how do we make application? We've talked about this before in dealing with all kinds of things. Of What things do we take from Leviticus and what things do we say that was the special time and place and people where this applied? You know, mm-hmm. and so as we look at these these things here in 24, I didn't make a lot of notes. I just said, you know, with these special circumstances, a time and place, and how do both of these things reconcile with the gospel and forgiveness? And I think I mean, we could probably, I'm sure, spend hours here. We don't have that. But that um, I think it's a thing that we each need to think about. I mean, do we just like, hey, I heard you be flippant with God's name. So, uh, yeah, sorry, we're going to have to take you outside and uh, <laughs> kill you with rocks. <laughs> Um, which I don't, I don't think is, I do not believe we are called to that today. We are not. And I think it's important that as we, as we move forward through this and as we, as we get to the new Testament, I mean, here, God is trying to establish his own people, basically a small theocracy that from there, they will show God's character. And he's trying very hard to say, you guys have to be separate. You have to be different for this to work for you to be examples of who I am you've got to be who I am. And when you step outside of that, it's, it's a failing proposition. And so I believe just my personal theory here is that God was frankly stricter with them at this time in this space than he was with them later. And then he is now, I don't believe that he is any less serious about the consequences of our actions because ultimately, I mean, we see it in Romans, the wages of sin is death. Yeah. I mean that that didn't go away. I think maybe his grace increased and his tolerance and patience for us increased and I would propose that it we should for each other because the only people stoning anybody else in the New Testament was the uh Jewish religious section stones Stephen and the secularists uh stone Paul several times in fact. We don't find the disciples or the early Christians stoning anybody. Um, when there was punishment to be meted out, we see, I think it's in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, God does it. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. have shifted the, we're going to punish you in this capital way to, we're going to let God handle this. I just think that that's an important thing because I occasionally hear, uh, my wife shared with me, some contemporary people Using this eye for an eye, <clears throat> tooth for a tooth, and this 
this kind of um, authoritarian model as in this is how we should treat each other nowadays. It was definitely it was definitely a serious thing. It still is. But yeah, we definitely don't do that now. Well, uh, let's see. Verse 17. Basically, death penalty for murder. Um, 18. If you kill an animal, then you need to make it good with it, the animal's owner. And uh, 19. Disfigurement. The same thing. You do If you've do, done something to somebody, you're going to get the same thing done to you. Interesting. Okay, so uh, chapter 25 begins with the Sabbath of the seventh year. This is kind of a cool concept. And I think maybe it's done to some degree now in the agricultural world. I'm not a farmer, so I don't know how often it's done. But the idea that every seven years, you're just going to let the land rest. And it says the land shall keep a Sabbath. And so six for six years, you're going to plant your fields. You're going to harvest them. But then that seventh year, you're just going to let it sit. Whatever grows there is going to grow. You're not going to go out and harvest it. It's just going to be there. And I know that there's practical application of this today because basically whatever grows on there kind of becomes a fertilizer for the next crop. And you're not using up everything that's in that land. If you, if you just continually grow on a piece of land, you start to take all the nutrients out of it by letting it grow and then just stay there. Uh, it's actually really good for the land. I, I think, too, this would be a pretty big step of faith. I mean, you're mm, yeah. this is your food. And if you don't plant and you don't harvest what you plant, then you're running on faith. Like you're running on faith that God is going to do. Because he says uh, in 21, I will command my blessing on you. So that basically... The year before you let the land, I'm going to give you so much food that not only will it last you on the year that you don't plant and harvest, is it will give you enough seed and extra food to last you the next spring while you're planting and before you can harvest that. So it's almost two years of food is going to come out of that sixth year of planting. Mm -hmm. But it would take faith. It definitely. Now, the next thing it talks about is this year of Jubilee that we've talked about. And it would come every what it calls seven Sabbaths of years. So every 49 years. So you'd have seven years you'd let the land rest. You'd have seven years you'd let the land rest. You do that seven times. When you get to that seventh uh, Sabbath, I guess you'd call it, then you would have the year of Jubilee. And this would be when land would go back to its original owners, uh, people who had sold themselves as servants, would be able to go free again. Yeah, all kinds so, of things. Go ahead. Before we get into this, which is a super cool thing, your math. Let's take a, let's slow down and look at that. In 25.8, you shall count seven weeks of years. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. What is a week of years? Yeah. Seven times seven, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. So what they're saying is, 49 days, seven times seven, equals 49 years. Mm, year. you, en you end up with the math that is a day equals a year. And yeah. that shows up again later in prophecy. If you don't believe me, I mean, the Babylonian captivity was to last uh, 70 weeks. It didn't last 70 weeks. 
And well, yeah, I'm sorry, not no, 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 70 weeks. The 70 week prophecy prophesied from the Babylonian captivity to the coming Messiah, which is 490 years. Mm-hmm. So you had 70 weeks that equaled 490 years. Again, if we sleep through this, when we get to Daniel and so on, we're like, what? I don't understand. How is it? What? And there were some Jews who understood this. They understood that a day in prophecy stood for a year. It shows up in it shows up in Daniel. Shows I believe in Ezekiel, but certainly in Revelation, where it's these days. And I just want to just not gloss over that because if you hit Revelation and then you hear somebody say, "Well, a day stands for a year," and we're like, "Well, where'd you get that?" Right here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there do you the go again. days do the ten days between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement mean anything then? No, no, those are literal days. Like ten days later, you're to do this, not ten years later. Mm. So, I mean, and that's a trick. I'm not saying. I'm just saying you got to pay attention. Yeah. As, yeah, as, yeah. As when this comes up, you have to pay attention because this, this, the Sabbath, the the land will rest and so on, and and get its rest. So some Jews still do keep the Sabbath year. I actually read about that, and they do have rules about the agriculture. You know what can be harvested and what can't, and and so on. Some of that celebrated today, the Jubilee, which is incredibly awesome, I think. And there's, I, I actually looked and looked is, is, and I couldn't find evidence that the Jewish people during this time actually kept this stuff, especially the year of Jubilee. Now they would, there was a lot of argument about when the year of Jubilee was supposed to land. Lots and lots and lots of discussion about that, but not much discussion about actually celebrating it. And if we get to does God say it and does he mean it thing in Second Chronicles 36, 20, which is fast forwarding the Israelites. And we want to make sure we leave some time to get to 26 because 26 is uh, wow, man, that's just like a boxing match. One, two, one, two, one, two to the face. Yeah. But um, in Second Chronicles 36, 20, we are told that God removed the people of Israel from the land that they were on so that the land could celebrate all the Sabbaths that they didn't give it. <laughs> Pretty big deal. He's like, I'm 70 years. I'm taking you out of this land. It's going to get to sit for 70 years, for all the years. You didn't do what I told you to do. Yeah. So anyways, Jubilee, keep going, because Jubilee yeah. is awesome. Totally different economic system. Absolutely. Would have resulted in a completely different world for them. Yeah. So we talked here about how in the seventh year you'd have enough crops to last you until the ninth year. So like you said, and this is all in, in relation to this year of Jubilee. Uh, verse 23, I believe, said something. Let me see. Make sure I'm not talking out of my something. It says the um, land shall be not sold in perpetuity. Yeah, that was it. The, you were not. So you could you could you could quote unquote sell your land. It really worked out to be more like a lease. But yeah. you could never you were never allowed to sell your land permanently. And the reason was because that land is not yours. It's God's. Yeah, it's like it's like mm-hmm. God is saying this is yours to use. Yes, I'm giving it to you. It's yours to use. But you don't get to sell it permanently. Uh, it's going to it's going to come back. And now there was stuff about being able to redeem this land. And I think we get to some of that later on in our reading today about about what it would take to redeem land if you had sold it or had or had dedicated it. But every jubilee, then that land would get released. So if you I mean, generally speaking, if you're selling land, it's probably because, well, you could think of like, you know, the 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 
the some of the stories today where the farmer has to sell land because the the farm the ranch just isn't doing well you know and and they need the money well that's kind of the reason that they would probably sell their land here they just needed the money you know but then when it came to jubilee that land comes back to them so um kind of a kind of a cool idea yeah Uh, just this pause and think about that you would not have the the um quote the old money like oh yeah well they've had money for centuries they've had they've had they're just super crazy rich and we're just super crazy poor you, you wouldn't totally have that playing field say it again tracy it totally uh levels the playing field yeah Where if you do you did have a bad year you do have a bad run that it's not forever the only thing that i was really thinking while i was reading this is what was the life expectancy back then? Right. Yeah. Every 49 years, I mean, you would probably only see this once in your lifetime. I mean, I I don't think at this point we were still hearing of people living over 100 years, you know, but you probably would only see one Jubilee in your lifetime, maybe two if you got really lucky, because that would put you at, what, 98 years old? Is my math right there? But what's awesome is like if your if your parents or grandparents did something really stupid, it wouldn't cripple your heritage forever. Yeah, it so is it an interesting just, idea. Yeah. I don't know that we could do it in our society now, run by a government. I mean, it would be bleh, it would never work. But with an in a theocracy like this, where they're understanding that God is that ultimate authority, and you're and you're going to do that, it's a cool idea. It really yeah, kind of it's, is. It's the way it's implemented. It has to be implemented from the get-go. I think mm-hmm. transitioning into something like this would be, mm-hmm. yeah, it'd be pretty difficult. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not impossible. <laughs> but yeah, so you, you would be able to, re- well, we'll get to that, but you would be able to redeem land that you had sold or that had been sold. Uh, you could redeem ho- houses. There's some specifics here that if you sold a house in a walled city, you could redeem that house within a year, and that house would not be released in Jubilee. But if you sold a house in a village with no walls, then it was kind of like the fields. You could redeem it at any point, and it would be released in Jubilee. But then the Levites, they kind of had to be under different rules with this. Their houses would be released if they were sold, uh, if they were in a city and sold. But the Levites were not allowed to sell their fields at all. Well, they were Levite cities. Right. This mm-hmm. isn't just any old city like these are houses in Levite cities. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that true? I thought so I, I saw took that. it. I yeah. think so. I think so. Yeah. But so, yeah, they but but the Levites, if they sold a house, they could redeem it at any time. But their houses would be released at Jubilee where other people's wouldn't. If you sold a house in a city, that house was gone. But not for so the Levites. Let's. Let's 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 move ahead because there's a lot of yeah. redeeming your brothers. You could sell yourself and then have somebody redeem you back, which shows up in the book of Ruth. Pretty cool mm-hmm. stuff. <laughs> yeah. So um, in 35 through 38, there's rules about lending to the poor. And the the, the, the gist of it is you're going to help the poor. Yeah. Period. Just you will help them. I, that was my biggest note that I took from that. And you were not going to charge interest to them. You were not going to. Uh, expect interest on the food. If now you weren't expected to just hand stuff over, they were expected to pay it back. Yeah. But you were going to help them out, and you were not going to profit off of a poor person. I like I like that idea. It's a that's probably a good it's a good 
rule of thumb for us to keep for ourselves that handouts may not be the greatest way to do it, but certainly need to help the poor. Uh, so laws concerning slavery. Now, we've talked about slavery in Israel in, in this, and there really were no Israelite slaves. They were hired servants until you got to Jubilee, and then they were considered uh, able to uh, free and able to go on how, however they wanted. But you could have slaves from other nations, and they were considered permanent property. So maybe a little different than we've said in past podcasts here, where we were kind of saying that slavery was just like a temporary indentured servitude. It is uh, if you're Jewish in this it context. It is if you're Jewish in this context. But they could have slaves from other nations. What were they treated like? I don't know. I didn't live there. I didn't live then. Um, I've always gotten the impression, though, that it was still very different than what happened here. You know, well, in 43, it says, You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear yeah. your God. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so even in the context of, of what their cultures were and were allowing, God is like, no, I'm expecting you to do it better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, Israelite servants, they could be redeemed by their family. So, you know, if the family decided to pony up some cash or whatever to, to uh, get them out of their servitude, they could do that. Or they would just be released in Jubilee. So, I mean, if you were really in a pickle and just needed something, you know, serving your putting yourself into servitude you know a few years before jubilee that might not be a bad gig i don't know uh let's see here we get into chapter 26 promises of blessing and retribution talks about not having idols and carved images for worship keeping sabbaths and reverence for the sanctuary i think we've talked probably plenty today about that kind of stuff if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and keep them, he says, you're going to end up having prosperity from the land. You're going to have safety from beasts and enemies. And he says, for I will look on you favorably. You will, you're, you know, you will have a fruitful existence. And, um, and God is going to confirm that covenant that we've talked about so much. Yeah. So if this is as an interesting exercise, specifically in chapter 26, if you were to go through and circle every if, and every mm -hmm. then, mm -hmm. I mean, we can, there's no way we can go through all of those. No, here. but basically, God is saying, if if you do this, then this happens. If you do this, then this will happen. And the summary is, if you do the right thing, you're going to be blessed. And if you do the wrong thing, it's going to go very, very badly for you. Just and straight up. And it's specific. <laughs> if you look in sixteen. Oh, I will point terror over you, wasting diseases, and fever shall consume your eyes and cause sorrow in your heart. That's, mm -hmm. that's pretty bold. Was it here in 26 where, you know, God goes through the blessings, but then it's like, if you don't do this, yeah, starting I'm going to do this. And then if you don't, yeah. and if and if you still don't do it, then this is going to happen. And if you still don't do it, then this is going to happen. And it's larger, it gets to individuals, and then it gets to the the people in general, to the point of, you know what? You'll plant the food, and somebody else is going to eat it. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the things that specifically talked about, and we can, you know, we having read through the Bible before, we'll be able, you're going to be able to recognize this when it happens when we get to it. But things like he says, you shall eat the flesh of your sons and daughters. There's stories yep. in, in the Bible about the people doing this because... 
that was all they had to eat. I mean, things were bad. They yep. got bad. It was because of this. Let's see. I will, I will lay your, oh, I will scatter you among the nations. Well, we know that that happens when they all get carried off to Babylon. And should, should, so why you mention that to, to our listeners or to, to other podcasters here, read this, read that portion in 26, in, in, in Leviticus 26, and then skip ahead and read how Daniel basically copies this in Daniel 9 as he prays for his people. Mm-hmm. He's saying, you know what? You told us. And we didn't listen. And we did this, 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 and wrong. But you promised, because this is a pretty cool thing, in 40, if they confess their iniquity, and see, this if-then doesn't quit. He's still saying, if you confess your iniquity and the iniquity of your fathers, yada, 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 if you do this, then, in 42, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and Abraham and their land. And I will, you know, so basically... He, there's there's a lot of if then, a lot of if then, and the Israelites lived out all, like you said, Matt, they lived out every single one of these things. Mm-hmm. It was almost like God was predicting it. He, you know, he almost should have said, well, when, <laughs> or he, he could have said when, and it would have been just, it would have been just as effective and, and done just exactly the same thing. He, cause he knew good and well that the Israelites well, were going to do this. And Solomon does. It's interesting when Solomon dedicates the temple and he prays. He just flat out says, when, when mm-hmm. Israel does this, this, and this, then God, I mean, so these promises, they show up again and mm-hmm. again and again. It's not like they just show up in Leviticus and it's like, yeah, whatever. It's like, this has really strong implications in the future of Israel. Solomon prays it. Yeah. Daniel prays it. Mm-hmm. This is the playbook. It's, if you do this, then this will happen. Yep. Expect it. Build on these promises. This is what I'm giving you. Yeah, and part of that, if they confess, it ends up with when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. That's important to remember, too, because like you said, we get to Daniel, and God clearly has not forgotten the Israelites when they're in Daniel. Yeah, See, and that's, and, what I, that's where I kept going back to this, is that as a whole, they forgot about these things. But there was always that remnant of people that remembered those and were able to bring them back and said, you know what? This isn't forever. We're in bondage, but it right. isn't forever. You know, yeah. keep looking forward to this thing. And it's because of this. It's because of this playbook that was set aside for them. That, you know what, if you do this, things will be good. If you if you break from it, then, you know, it's, it's going to get bad. Just like Eric said, it's going to get bad and it could get even worse. But don't, right. you know, but don't forget, I'm still here for you. There's still, you know, something that you could do to remedy the situation and get back to where you need to be. Chapter 27 now finishes off the whole book. Now, keep, this is, I thought this is maybe significant that the entire book, of course, is talking about various ways to worship, things that they're going to have to do. But we've also talked about dedicating things and people selling themselves and whatnot and being redeemed. And there are values, specific values placed on people at different points in their life based on some of it's based on their age, some of it's based on whether they're male or female, but different values, literal monetary values that got put on them for this redeeming purpose. Now, I don't remember, and it probably doesn't matter that much, but, you know, if you were to sell yourself into servitude, you know, what, how much you would get for that. And this, it starts out specifically talking about if somebody's been dedicated to God, and I'm not entirely sure what we're talking about there, 
but but you would have this monetary value to redeem that person. So for like a male, 20 to 60 years old, his value was 50 shekels of silver. A female at the same age was 30 shekels. A child, a male child, 5 to 20, he would be 20 shekels. A female would be 10 shekels. A male 60 and up would be 15 shekels, and a female would remain at 10 shekels. You know, I, I don't know if the reasoning behind that is all that significant. But when we get into some other things here, we get to points where the priest would actually name the value. And in order to redeem them, you would have to pay the value plus 20%. And I think the part that I took away from this was was the idea that it costs more to redeem you than you're worth. Ooh. Does that make sense? That's, that is a really cool observation because yeah. this, this isn't, I, I started reading this and I was thinking about this is about slavery, but, but I don't think it is because it starts uh-huh. talking about land and it starts talking about crops and redeeming, you know, your house and, and all these other things. That is a super cool observation, Matt. Yeah, I, I don't know. It just hit me as I was reading through this, and I thought, wow. I mean, we think of being, you know, what? We all say we've been redeemed by Christ, right? Uh, but, you know, what am I worth? I'm worth my life, right? But take my life. Have I been redeemed? No, I'm dead. I'm just dead. But we've been redeemed by the blood of, by the blood of Christ, and his blood is worth so much more than mine. And that's what it costs for me to be redeemed. Now, his, you know, he's worth far more than twenty, more than twenty percent than me. But whatever my value is, I guess I fall into that. That uh, well, I'm not in the sixty plus yet, but <laughs> I'm in that. I'm still, I'm still in that valuable stage of being worth fifty shekels of silver. But yeah, it's gonna. Your redemption costs a lot, and more than you could ever pay. And they were they were getting a a concept here of that it was going to cost more than than you were worth or whatever it was that you put up in order that redemption cost more than it was worth, and that that just hit me as significant. And all kinds of things could be redeemed too, not just. And I don't understand how it all works because there's things about about you know clean things and unclean animals that could be redeemed. I'm not exactly sure how you would. How you would devote a, a a an unclean animal to God? I don't know. I don't know how that works. But I wondered um, about that too. But they weren't be, they weren't being made sacrifices though, and it's still something that God has made, and it's still His. And so I guess somehow there would be some value there that that could be applied towards God. But yeah, so that was it. That was it. It ends up with after all these things. It start it, the the book ends with the idea of redemption. Any other final thoughts on the book of Leviticus? No, because I'm still pondering what you said at the end. That, <laughs> that I didn't I didn't see that, but I see it now. No, that's actually I took it that that was the pearl from today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. But to me, that was a that that's a fitting tie-in to just to everything, this play play by play book, and to let you know that yeah, and it's still a a message of redemption, 
Mm-hmm. All of this, all of this was all, this entire book has all been about consecration and redemption and, and placing value on things that people didn't see, including themselves, being, making sure to place value on things that are holy, uh, specific value on things. And but I wonder too, if, you know, and forgive me if I make this correlation, but a lot of times in the military, you go to, you go to boot camp, and what they say it is, is it's to break the individual and to make you a part of a team. And what I see too in this whole sojourn through the wilderness is in essence, that's what God did. Is he he broke them down into something he can mold and then also told them, you know what, I'm not breaking you down, you know, to feel like you're nothing, but I'm also letting you know here that you're worth so much more. You know what I mean? To make you mine and to make you part of, you know, and Maybe team is just a simplistic way to put it, but making you part of my team, you are worth so much more. And this is this is the the guy that you have to follow. And this is the reason for all these tests throughout the wilderness is to get you to that point where you can you can get into Canaan and you could build a, a civilization or society there that is just based in me. All right. Well, I think that is going to do it for the book of Leviticus then. Now, next time we will start into the book of Numbers. Now, the book of Numbers is a little bit different. There's literally a lot of numbers in here. Uh, it, it's going to talk about two different times that the, that the Israelites were specifically counted. And so the first two chapters of Numbers uh, literally is it's just a lot of statistics. Uh, so I think next week we'll probably try to go maybe as far as, as chapter seven, because once we get past all those numbers, then we get into some more interesting uh, instructions that they were given. So I think next week we will or or for our next time, we will get to our to the when we start the book of numbers, we will go through chapter seven. In the meantime. Keep in mind, you can reach us with any questions or comments you might have at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. Look for us on Facebook. Uh, Be sure to share the podcast with your friends and family. Help us to get the message out to the people. And be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app so that you can get us each and every week. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening. do that every time <laughs> I like the last it reminds me of my place <laughs> hey well he said he didn't have to edit you as much as he has to edit everybody else no. <laughs> all right here we go sorry guys <laughs>